we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello, Jim. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Fine. Big weekend. Did you hear about Minneapolis? Yeah. The city council voted to uh, dismantle the police department, kind of start over. From what I've heard, it's kind of a symbolic gesture that they're going to figure something out, but not a concrete plan of exactly what this is going to look like. Um, But they're like, we hear you. Right. We need to start over. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, real consequential result of what is happening. Like we, as we heard last week in the episode with Alex Vitale, Minneapolis has been a progressive reform minded city in terms of policing and has tried a lot of the things that other Mm -hmm. cities haven't even tried to decrease violence and racism in the system. And I think they're at a point where people in that city have said, uh, you know, you've tried these incremental reforms. They're not working. We need a totally mm-hmm. new system. I mean, the protests are really making a very clear impact. Yeah. And I understand New York also said that it's going to move at least some funding from police right. towards social right. services. We don't have I the don't details on that yet, but de Blasio much, did, but... did a signal a willingness to transfer some money. Yeah, which sounds like, based on what we learned last week, that is probably the most evidence-based, effective approach rather than adding on training modules. Right. So those are really super interesting developments that that would not have felt, I think, within the realm of possibility a couple months ago. So things are changing. Yeah. Another uh, sort of clear instance of the protests having some effect, it seems— or, or, you know, government being responsive and changing course. Here in New York, there was supposed to be a curfew until yesterday, and uh, the mayor ended up canceling it early. Yeah. And, you know, all hell has not broken loose, even though we can be out after eight. Um, one thing that is interesting today is fa- we enter phase one. We're reopening in New York City. Right. A lot of places have been reopening for several weeks now, but today is phase one. Do you know what phase one means? Um, I think it means the the first uh, phase <laughs> of a multi-phasic process <laughs> in which we uh-huh. will sort of ease or gradually step ourselves back into, uh, you know, uh, this system of functioning, which was formerly the norm. I mean, I do understand the words phase and one, but do you know what oh. the specifics are? <laughs> well, uh <laughs> Well, I'm looking at uh, what our our plan is, and it looks like you're still not allowed to 
yell, Hey, I'm walking here. But you can. <laughs> that's phase three. Yeah, that's, a that's, later phase. that's gonna be phase three. And I think that's when we'll really feel like we're back to life as a as a city. I did get honked at recently while crossing the street and I felt like, okay, we're heading back to normal. Me. I think uh, cons- certain types of construction jobs, manufacturing and retail can open back up. Hmm. So we'll see if things start to feel a little bit more normal. But here's my question. Should we be reopening? Like, what? Are, how is it working out elsewhere? Do you have a sense? You know, who's been following the reopenings at a real granular level is Alexis. And I would like to ask him about that. Right. So Alexis Madrigal is a staff writer here, and he is also um, the co-founder and kind of co-lead on the COVID tracking project, which is, uh, we talked to him about this, I don't know, months ago, weeks ago. Uh, three years ago. When I, It was in the past. It was before phases. It's a tracking of all state-level data about testing and positive rates and all this stuff. Um, what I want to ask him about and what, what is a little bit concerning is he and Rob Meyer have a new piece that went up this weekend. The headline is America is giving up on the pandemic, which is concerning as we've all been kind of returning to public life. What do we know about how this is going to go? Yeah, I don't think we've given up. I, I look forward to arguing with Alexis over this. Hey, Alexis. Hey, Alexis. Hey, what's up, Jim? How are you? How are you doing? We're trying to make, we'll see if this is going to work, but we got a camper van and we're trying <gasps> to go to Sarah's parents' house in extremely rural Colorado, but we don't want to have to stop anywhere except for gas. <laughs> Whoa. So you're going to van life it. So we're going to van life it because once we're there, we literally don't have to leave. Like it's it's the kind of place where you can just sit there and there's like a swimming pond and I'll just go running in the middle of nowhere. Wait, so are uh, you settling in out there? Um, just for like a month, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, I feel like it's like the old days of travel when everyone is just going places and unsure when they'd return. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like a steamer <laughs> trunk. with. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm going to be going off to Europe for this summer. I'll be back when I can find a proper ship yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel that way. I mean, seriously, though. Yeah, how are you going to decide when to come back? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, the main thing in this case was, like, it just didn't seem like anything was going to change. So if nothing was going to change, it felt like, well, do we want to basically isolate with Sarah's parents at some point? And if so, then what's different about now than in two months? Yeah. Right. Well... You're saying nothing is going to change for you personally, which seems to echo the headline of the piece you just wrote. America is mm-hmm. giving up on the pandemic. Are you are you giving up? No, I mean, I would say I'm kind of settling in because it feels like institutionally um, we're not going to go anywhere close to suppression. Like, like the experience of this for me is... Every day, you know, we finish these data runs in the COVID tracking project. And I think to myself, like, oh, well, today, maybe we'll start to see something really different. And just for weeks and weeks now, you just see over 20,000 cases on average every day. New cases? New confirmed mm-hmm. cases. And it's just, it's just not going away, you know. Um, and as time goes on, it just sort of seems to me like if we're not pushing the number of cases down, 
eventually the number of cases are going to go up because you just cannot bumping along in the sort of way that we have actually feels quite unsustainable to me because you can just see it everywhere right now. And, you know, you can see it in the protest. You can see it in Las Vegas. I mean, these things do not have this. They're not morally equivalent, but they're just like you can just see people are gathering in groups more often. They're expanding their pods. My understanding from just ambiently absorbing news and information is, you know, there was this crisis moment where we were all super freaked out um, in March and April. Mm-hmm. Into May, some of the, the most dramatic stories started tamping down. And then we're starting to reopen. And I mean, the just sort of sense I would get from that is that there were a lot of cases and, and the trend is going down. What are you actually seeing in the data? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that basically the New York metro area drove like the the first wave here. And so if you look at the national numbers, they've been... Sorry. Different. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was us. You know, the, the, the national numbers have been going down for a long time. But right. if you basically take out those places, that isn't really what's been happening. So, you know, when you kind of take out the East specifically... Cases everywhere else were kind of bumping along for May. And basically, since the end of May, they've been trending upwards as people really started to, to loosen up. And the loosenings up that had happened before started to sort of be reflected in the data. Mm-hmm. I think what makes this um, story kind of complicated is that the states that people expected to have major outbreaks immediately, like Georgia, Florida, didn't see it like that. It's not that the numbers haven't gone up, but they haven't like gone up as much as they have in places like Arizona and California. And so, you know, it, it says a couple things, you know, at least to me, A, that the what the government says is not the only thing. People's individual behavior matters a lot. And for a long time, regardless of sort of the politics at the top, like people were kind of doing a lot of the same stuff. Right. There was more more unity in behavior than you would have been led to believe. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And now that's running the other way, though, I think. People in California are kind of acting as more in concert with people in Georgia than you would have thought. What are the states that you're most worried about? Um, Arizona, uh, North Carolina. We, we haven't seen another situation like New York yeah. um, yet. We haven't seen like an outbreak that just starts to move extremely quickly through population. Arizona is the closest thing we have to that right now, um, where you just see, I mean, I'll just look at their numbers quickly. You know, like if you, you know, back in May, um, you know, they were getting you know, 300 new positives a day. And now they're getting 1,438 yesterday, you know, 1,500 the day before that, 1,200 the day before that. Like you start to see this line that's just going up really quickly. Um, and I think one of the major questions is, and, and something that I feel like we just kind of haven't grappled with for some reason is what happens when this happens? Like, let's say this happens in a state that, that opens up, you know, California says it's like going through all these different stages, but is also seeing growing cases. Let's say they start to see Arizona like data. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens then? You know, do, do they and just I don't mean what does the government do? The government may do different things in different places, but what do the people do? You're never you going to have that same sense of urgency and fear as the first time. Like people have this tolerance to risk that they've already gotten used to people being hurt and killed by this virus. And they're never 
going to immediately withdraw and shut down as quickly and as urgently as may have happened in the past. I think that's right. Yeah. We're going to need it kind of everywhere. Like if you're, let's say you're in Arizona and this trend continues for a few more weeks and, and you suddenly have just a really huge outbreak there. Wouldn't you want to get out of Arizona? <laughs> and then what? Yeah. Then you're just spreading it to other, other states. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the contact tracing only works with fairly small numbers. You need to catch it fairly early. Once the thing is really rolling, then you can't catch up. It's not as if the federal response is coordinating more effectively. The yeah. states are in a very difficult spot or they're all in these kind of fiscal cliff kind of moments. Cities are going to have less money, not more. Well, so is the only answer then for everyone to get camper vans and drive uh, to rural Colorado? I hope not. hope not. <laughs> Just me. Right, um, because when you got there, if there were suddenly 300 million people. Yeah, right, right. Then it would be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, it seems like the U.S. is kind of backing into just a highly, highly individualistic approach to this right uh, thing. Um, there seem to be some paradoxes here, and like it, it didn't play out in every state in similar ways at all. And right. I'm wondering, one of the things that I've relied on is like New York has this unique lifestyle and population density that really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, there's no place else in the country. Yeah. that is like this. And we shut down pretty aggressively and people have been really compliant with masks and social distancing everywhere that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And yet there have been other states that haven't been, were slower to shut down, have been less aggressive, or apparently there's less compliance with public health directives about social distancing. What are you seeing emerging in patterns from state to state? I think the the randomness of it is something that I've really struggled at. You know, Basically, you have this kind of weird non-linearity to the virus, yeah. particularly because we know that some people spread it to a lot of people and most people spread it to no one or very few people. And so you just have this weird situation where you can't really, your intuitions about the risk are very hard to tune. Yeah. And that's what makes what happened on the West Coast so interesting, right? Versus the East Coast. On the West Coast, you had a bunch of early introductions from China, but in a lot of places, just kind of nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you had people coming, they didn't give it to anyone, and then there was no transmission chain that began there. Right. I think it kind of triggers our sense of unfairness mm -hmm. that, you know, you could do all the right things and still get infected, or you could do absolutely nothing and just be lucky. Like, there was an infected person at Lake of the Ozarks, you know, where there was this big, big pool party going on uh, a few weeks ago. How many people were infected by that person? There's a good chance, none, you know? And there's also a good chance that a bunch, but it, it's not as if there is a logic to that that exists outside of that person's body. It's that statistical just fact that I, I think, at least for me, has made this harder to deal with. Yeah. You know, even with these, with the protests, say, you may have huge protests and you see no signal of an increase. Uh, and you may have a small protest in which one super spreader happened to go and a bunch of people get it. Right. And that does not bode well. Like if the lottery has taught me anything, this idea, like we are the ones who are going to be spared. I th you see this with all kinds of disease and preventive measures. Like that happens to other people until you're the one who gets the diagnosis. Right. And if there's any 
the more that there's a sense of randomness to the patterns of transmission, the more I think we'll see a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to get lucky. I'm going to be right. one of the ones who's, you know, can you know, drive drunk or can keep a loaded gun in my house and whatever, all the things that we're told not to do and statistically right. put you at great odds for harm. Um, That's totally right. It's one reason why, you know, you look at North Carolina and you look at Georgia and you go like, oh, wait, these places did like <laughs> North Carolina is like a state that could have serious trouble, whereas Georgia's not. They have like similar climate, similar political environment, similar all these things. And yet, you know, you look at North Carolina, you know, the line is going up very consistently. You look at Georgia and you don't see the same thing. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it. I well, mean, like, if yeah. you can't know what to make of it, then no one can, right? You're watching. <laughs> well, that's states. what I'm thinking is, so we last talked to you, I don't know, soon after you started the COVID tracking project, when it, yeah. we were just, I guess, realizing that, you know, the CDC wasn't releasing data comprehensively. And so you actually, outside of the CDC, you probably have access to the most detailed information of anyone. And it's not like you're just covering, looking at it as a journalist, you're, you're working with epidemiologists and data scientists, mm -hmm. right? To kind of mm -hmm. analyze this data. Is yeah. that right? Mm -hmm. So you actually, <laughs> I think what I'm hearing from you is when you started this, you know, there was this clear problem to solve, which was the government mm -hmm. was not giving us any data. We didn't have data. Right. Here, two months later, we have a lot more data. And the result is we can't tell what the patterns are. Right. Yeah. I mean, you didn't set out to solve coronavirus or anything, but you must have hoped that gathering and analyzing all of this information would lead to answers that, that must affect you in some way. Yeah. You know, honestly, the last few days, what I've been feeling the most is like, as we go through this next six, nine, 12, 15 months of this, how do we keep putting energy into covid when people are just so tired of it like as a person how i really feel is just tired of this bullshit like i just want to see my friends i want to like do normal shit like that's what i want mm -hmm. you know and it's been months i feel it so hard the yeah. like feeling of like god i am over this you know um yeah. and i feel like if i'm feeling this and I look at this shit every day and I know it's real. I know the virus is still out there. We've seen it go through country after country. It's going through Latin America right now. We know that it's, you know, we're going to go through this summer. It's not going to be gone in the fall. And then we're going to have this yeah, flu and this going on at the same time. And I just, oh, this, like, and I'm just like, man, I, sometimes I just think to myself, like, do I personally have the metal? And does this country have the metal to like, just keep attention on something that's just so annoying and <laughs> dangerous and lethal and like requires these like communitarian impulses. And I just don't know. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the protests that are happening right now, uh, sparked, well, they're about a lot of things, but sparked by police violence, which has been an issue, you know, for so long and racial disparities in policing. And maybe there's just this window of time frame of national urgency that can't, you know, that shifts from problem to problem. I, I also think that some of the, I want to say, maybe effectiveness isn't right. Like of the available pool of energy for the protest seems to be extremely large in part because COVID forced people to see that 
massive national, nearly instantaneous change was in fact possible. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's a way in which like many years of on the ground organizing by people and BLM and other organizations met this moment where there was just so many people were like, oh man, this country, like, and can we do it? Can we pull to, you know, and suddenly those two things kind of catalyzed each other in a way that I think is one reason why the protests seem so effective. Cause it really, it really does seem like, you know, just the change that uh, I've seen around me, even, even here in Oakland, where <laughs> there's like a lot of people have been talking about the Oakland police department um, in the ways that you see in the national conversation for a long time. But I kind of, to be honest, I thought it was kind of an Oakland specific thing that seemed unlikely to get national purchase, you know, and then suddenly these, you know, conversations that were going on among Oakland radicals are now going on, like just out there in the regular public, you know, and I think there's clearly something has changed in the last um, two weeks. And I, and I do think that some part of it is tied up with this kind of deeper structural reevaluation of sort of what change is possible in America right Right. now. The protests are reinforcing the sort of values that will be necessary to overcome COVID, you know, like on on a local level. You know, um, I think, you know, what I feel like we've given up is that there'll be sort of like a national strategy that will coordinate, you know, like that the, that on a federal level, we would somehow get over the top. But that I feel like I have pretty much given up uh, hope on. But I do think that there's, you know, do these protests help prepare people to defend their community in different ways, you know, um, once people really commit to their, to their cities or, or places, um, in the way that people seem to be doing in these, in these protests. I, I it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting question, you know, I mean, yeah, change can happen. People need to see the communal spirit and nature of problems. I do not feel that we have given up. Yes. I see all of the facts you're talking about, but from a feelings perspective, <laughs> I don't think we've given up. Yeah, and I, I I hope so. I mean, I really I really do. You all right, Alexa? Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I'm good. I think you no, should I'm go good. go to Colorado. You know, they have aspens there, and they're just all one tree. <laughs> I did know that actually. They just uh, hang out underneath the surface, all tied together, communicating, and they look like a bunch of different trees, but they're not. It does always give me hope. Them and the mushrooms, you know. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Just some tree facts here. Yeah, just Thank some tree you, facts. Thank you, Alexa. It was really good to talk to you guys. I hope yeah, you're... it's good to talk yeah, to you. Too. Good luck with your trip. Yeah, well call like us that. from yeah. your shortwave radio when you're uh, in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and van lifing it. it. Hopefully you have I a will. bicycle-powered generator or something. Yes, that's right. Something like that. Maybe just a car battery. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. Okay. Okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. So that feels like an important thing to say out loud like i guess it's obvious but it sounds like the conclusion of what he is seeing in the data is just like herd immunity is where we're headed the virus will pass through the majority of the population before we have a vaccine not to give up hope for some sort of treatment or more information about um the virus certainly we'll keep learning more but as it stands it seems like it's going to touch everywhere yeah well i mean i think that was um kind of the way I'd been seeing it for a while, but the reality of places reopening and the way that the distribution has played out 
gives me yet less hope. Listen, here's my question, though. I'm looking at a post-it that I wrote on the first day we talked. Uh-oh. I have on here a list of all the things I was supposed to get at the grocery store. Yeah. Cold medicine, Tylenol, acetaminophen, Kleenex, food, et cetera, et cetera. And then I have a little note right next to it, and it says 1.5 million Americans are about to die. I don't think I said that. I said that it, there's the capacity for that at the projections. I mean, we've hit 110,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. That we know about, yeah. Right. If we've kind of lost this fight, this is not the end of those deaths. This is the beginning. Well, yeah, you have to look at that's 110,000 deaths in about four months of largely being pretty vigilant. I mean, the, the virus has been the top story on the news most every day of that mm-hmm. time, and a lot of places have been shut down. And so assuming that most people are not immune and we're going to go back to the way things were, yeah, we're going to have some respite in the summer because people will be outdoors, people will still be being cautious. And it kind of remains to be seen how many people stay vigilant with masks and hand washing and distancing and how many people insist on doing the real high-risk things. We could still see hundreds of thousands of more people die. It will just be less. We will become used to it. Yeah, I think that's the problem with so many health issues, right? I mean, from gun violence to cancers and heart disease and all kinds of infectious diseases, we kind of get used to things being there and we lose the urgency. If that didn't happen with COVID-19, it would be the rare outlier. This is such an interesting moment in our history where I think if there's anything that the protests and the reaction over the last couple of weeks show us is that even when we as a society accept something for a long time, it doesn't mean that we will always accept it. That's true. I guess this time is showing us how what a society is willing to tolerate and what it will reject can change. It can. Yeah. Why don't we leave it there and we can keep talking on I hope Alexis never takes a day off. We need him to keep tracking. He needs to work from his camper van. (laughs) Yeah, no, I want to see shots of the van. I'm a big van life fan. Me too. You want to do the credits? This show was produced by Kevin Townsend. Please write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. If you like the show, please tell one friend. And write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help people find the show. Okay. Talk to you Wednesday. Talk to you Wednesday. Okay. Bye. Bye.